time has gotten away from me. Are we good? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. <clears throat> Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in Philippians 4. And uh, once again, Philippians chapter 4. And for the first time, we'll be looking at verses 20 through 23. The conclusion to the chapter, the conclusion to the book. It's good to be back. I appreciate Cornelius uh, covering for me last Wednesday. Appreciate Randy Blair and uh, the blessings of being able to go and attend the uh, Schaefer Seminary Bible Conference down in Houston and that so many blessings there. Uh, all the old pastors I got to meet again and fellowship with and then some new pastors, new to me anyway. And uh, yes, many, many blessings. So appreciate the time away and uh, yet it's good to be back. Philippians chapter 4, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever, amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So there we have it, four verses, the end of the book, very common for Paul. He likes to end in most of his epistles with various greetings and so forth. But we realized in the book of Romans, we realized in 1 Corinthians and Galatians, every time we reach a, uh, this portion of any of Paul's writings, that there is actual meat to be learned from. He's, this isn't just a hurry up and say goodbye to everybody and you know get out of here, move on to the next letter kind of thing. There's actually significant aspects here. For example, those of Caesar's household. You think there's a story there? Is there something we want to learn based on that? And uh, the the blessings of the greetings that we have one to another in uh, in the body of Christ. But for tonight, uh, I don't think we'll get much past verse twenty because we've got to talk about glory. And when you study the glory of God, uh, you're going to be a while. Uh, glory is altogether glorious. So uh, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study, and uh, we can proceed beyond that. Silent prayer, please. Almighty Father, we do come before you this evening, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth and the blessings we have to assemble together. Father, I do thank you for last week's message that Cornelius brought. I thank you for uh, the teaching that Randy provided on Sunday morning. I thank you for the wealth of blessings that you have poured forth upon this lampstand, Father. We've always been uh, so overwhelmed and blessed with an abundance of teachers. And, and all of that is for your good pleasure, for the glory of your Son, we call upon you once again tonight now to uh, return us back to the Philippian study and uh, to focus our attention again upon this, uh, this beautiful, beautiful book. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. I'm going to miss this book when we're done with it, I tell you. This has uh, been a couple years already that we've been in it, and uh, I almost want to slow things down so that uh, I can spend some more time with it before we move on to, uh, to Colossians. All right, well, it is Wednesday night, and we want to take some time for some Q&A. If there's some questions, we can take about 10 minutes or so. Let's just start right there. Yeah, my question comes out of Luke 11:24. Mm-hmm. My Bible at home, I don't remember what translation I have, but it reads um, waterless places. And I'm just, when it, I read that, it just kind of hit me like, 
do uh, these evil spirits not like water? That is a marvelous question. And uh, this is something I've been pondering for years. Uh, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man. So what are the consequences if you cast a demon out of a demoniac? Um, you know, uh, it's called waterless places. And it's interesting to me the number of places where water is connected with demons, with fallen angels, with uh, Nephilim, for example, the flood, for example, destroyed all the Nephilim in the world. I believe it produced the demons originally. So it was connected to water. Their abode in uh, is called the abyss, and the abyss is sometimes a water term, sometimes a, a dimensional term for uh, for the bottomless pit of the underworld. Uh, also, uh, legion. When the demons were cast out of legion, they filled the swine, and then the swine went running into the into the water. So uh, there are so many connections on water, and then with the new heavens and new earth, on the new earth there is no longer any sea. And so there, there's a lot of factors in there that I put together. And then this expression here about waterless places. And uh, it, it's interesting to me that that's why I think demons are not fallen angels, that they're a separate realm, that fallen angels are the, the parents of the demons, if you will. Um, because uh, the, the craving of embodiment, the idea that, oh, I want to go back. And this guy wants to go back and he finds the house is swept and put in order. So he goes and gets seven buddies and brings them in, you know, to crash it like a party. And But the idea of wanting to be craving embodiment, I think, speaks to the demons and the fact that they formerly were embodied before they became disembodied, before they became demons. So, yeah, there's a lot to that. And I have more questions than answers at this point, but I appreciate uh, bringing that up because it's a reminder for me to go back to that, uh, go back to that study again. And, by the way, the body, you know how much what percentage of your body is water anyway? I mean, the, a huge part of the human body is made up of water in any event. So that's uh, an, another interesting description of it there. All right, other questions tonight? Back row there for Doug. I wrote this one down. Will the thousandth generation eventually be resurrected? You know, it doesn't really say. And uh, so the thousand generations is a promise that's given seven times in the Old Testament that God has made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, it's an eternal covenant, but it's a covenant that he's made to a thousand generations. And so some people view that as a contradiction. How can it be? Because a thousand's a finite number, right? It's a great big number, but it's still finite. Um, eternal is a time reference but a thousand generations is a personal reference. And so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, there's three generations right there. I just keep numbering them, right? Um, and he's promised that. He's promised his faithfulness to a thousand generations forever. And so uh, as we chart it, as we diagram it, of course, the millennium is not long enough. That's only a thousand years. But after the millennium, in the new heavens and on the new earth, when there's no more sickness, no more death, no more sin, when those first things have passed away, then we have a, uh, a uh, in our diagram and in our concept, we have a place that a thousand generations could unfold. And so that's what we conclude. That's what Larkin concluded. That's what uh, Trench and those guys concluded. But then at the end of that thousand generations, uh, do they get raptured? Do they get tra- translated? Do they get transformed in the twinkling of an eye? And are they provided with uh, a body of glory? I don't know. I don't know that. Um, my initial... 
suspicion would be yes, only because I think in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, I think Paul is outlining different resurrections that take place there. So 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, uh, then comes the end. And so when you're talking about the resurrections, since a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It says, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end. So if all of those are descriptions of resurrections in a, in a sequence and in an order, then I think we have to include the end as a resurrection event also, which would include the millennium and the fullness of time and, and those calling those resurrections. And after the fullness of time, it's eternity. Mm-hmm. Eternity and future. Time no longer is like it is now. It's it's called an eternal day or the age of the ages. Yeah, there's different so expressions. In fact, we're going to see one tonight because to our God and Father be the glory, forever and ever, right? Which is longer than forever. That's forever and ever. Mm-hmm. So we'll uh, we'll be seeing that tonight. So the uh, the eternal new new heavens and earth, a new earth. At one point, there won't be time on that earth either. But it will still. Well, we'll find out when we get there. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's awkward talking about eternity and at the same time talking about time, right? Because, um, where is it? It's in Revelation where it talks about half an hour. There it is. Revelation 8.1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, wait a minute. If you're in heaven, aren't you outside of space and time? Aren't you beyond this physical dimension? Aren't you in, a, in the eternal realm of heaven? I mean, how do clocks even run in heaven, right? So that's a, that's a verse that is, it just causes people to puzzle and say, wow, silence in heaven for about half an hour. And uh, there's even some sexist jokes about this too, which is part of the evidence for why you know, there aren't any women in heaven. It's a dumb punchline, and it's just based upon the fact that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And the whole point of that joke, anyway, I won't explain it, but um, I'm already in trouble. I'll let that go. But this is a verse that, uh, so when, if you can measure time, if you can measure sequence, and that's all time is, it's a sequence, a chronology, um, it's not really stated, you know? I mean, there's not that kind of specificity. You know, we're we're 21st century American Christians trying to read our Bibles and and lamenting the fact that the ancient Hebrews didn't write with a technical specification that our engineers like today. You know, they just that's not who they were. That's not how they wrote. And so, um, I suspect we're still going to be linear. We're still going to have before and after uh, in in all that we do. Um, It's just hard to hard to relate to on that. Yeah. All right, front row. Then we'll give. uh, We'll give Robert our cleanup. You're the cleanup hitter tonight. How about that? So the bases are loaded and the pressure's on. Well, it's actually a follow-on to add to what you said. You you've told me once that the early saints who are, are with the Lord for two thousand years now, mm-hmm. you don't think that they have that consciousness of that amount of time passing. Oh Something yeah, like I did say that. <laughs> Brilliant. That was, that was, okay, so Paul's been in heaven for 2,000 years. What's he been doing the whole time? You know, um, 
Uh, yeah, I think that their perception of the flow of time is so different from ours. And, and we can observe that even amongst ourselves, right? You take uh, you know, some of the older folks in our flock and you take some of our little kids in the flock and, and time passes differently for, for, those, for those people, you know? You, you just drive across Texas with a kid in the car and you, you, you realize, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I mean, time is just so different when you're young and when you're older. And so when you're eternal in glory, what's the passing of time going to be like there? I think it's going to be an order of magnitude beyond what we can even process here in in mortality. So thank you for reminding me about that. All right. Well, let's go to Philippians 4 and um, gain gain some new ground here with a new paragraph we're dealing with tonight. We wrapped up, uh, goodness, it was two weeks ago, last time we were in this study, and, uh, of course, my God will supply all your need. And uh, we talked about riches, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus and what that is and what that's not. It's not our carnal view of what we think is riches. It's not our lust for more money and stuff. Um, it's uh, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And the true wealth, the eternal wealth, that's our blessing to lay up in heaven and enjoy for all eternity. And... Uh, considered the idea of maybe stopping and doing a little bit more with that, maybe doing a doctrinal study, different things. But then the reason why I didn't is because it became real obvious that, well, wait a minute, in verse 19 we've got riches and glory, and then in verse 20 we have glory. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so there is a very simple bridge from verse 19 to verse 20, and that's the glory bridge that links these verses together. And then really it, it ties the, the conclusion to the previous paragraph to the, uh, the beginning of this conclusion. So uh, we're not going to stop for a doctrinal study, but I am going to give you a lot of points on glory and glorification that I think are needed. They're needed because it's a term that's misunderstood. And so we'll, uh, we'll deal with that here in the process of, of these verses. You might remember that uh, this chapter was broken down into three parts. We've covered two of those three. Uh, In verses 1 through 9, we talked about the practical applications uh, for rapture-ready Christians and what we should be doing if we're forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And then we talked about money because uh, verses 10 through 19 was a thank you note for the money that the Philippians had sent to Paul. They had sent a a financial grace gift uh, and he was thankful to have received it. He wrote them a receipt, if you will, when he says that he's received his uh, amount in full. And, uh, and then he said, and by the way, this is a priestly sacrifice, a sweet-smelling savor before the Lord. Uh, I love the priestly language that you see there in verse 18. Also for the real prophet in verse 17. And I'm highlighting these tonight because they're going to come back again here shortly in, verses, uh, in verse 20. When he said, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And that is so powerful. And we're going to see it again tonight in terms of glory. The fact that the giver is the one who profits. The giver increases. The giver gains in God's spiritual economy. In, uh, in our priestly function, in our giving, in the uh, function of giving, in all that we do, it's the givers. More blessed to give than to receive, as, uh, as our Lord said. And so, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. That's what makes this different. Christian giving is different from earthly transactions. 
in different from, uh, from just giving somebody money in the earthly realm. If I pull 20 bucks out of my pocket and give you 20 bucks, you just increase 20 bucks and I decrease 20 bucks. That's the nature of that. And so you profited. There is no way in earthly terms the person giving somebody else money is going to profit by that. But God says that's exactly what happens in the spiritual realm. That when you're giving in grace, when you're giving as unto the Lord, when you're gracious to the poor, Proverbs says, he who is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord. And that's a marvelous promise that comes out of the book of Proverbs. So uh, here in the New Testament as well we see this. Uh, This is going to be the point that we're going to make with respect to glory because God is granting uh, according to the riches of His glory. And yet His glory is not at all diminished. His glory is actually magnified. Every time He provides our needs, my God will supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So He gives and He gives and He gives again, but His glory is never diminished because as much glory as He gives us, He gets all the more. And that's uh, it's a marvelous illustration, and we'll be seeing that here in just a moment. So we have the money application in verses 10 through 9, and uh, He writes the receipt in verse 18, When it says, I have received everything in full, that was ancient Greek uh, uh, practice uh, of saying, uh, yes, here's a receipt, uh, shipment received, we're great. Um, Then he said, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And these are the little verses, these are the little things in the Bible that are just so precious and so marvelous that we've learned uh, really, in the 20th century, we learned more about Koine Greek in the 20th century than the 19th centuries preceding related to that. Uh, there was a time in the 1800s when um, scholars were all classicists. They were all uh, very much proponents of, of classical Greek. And so the high uh, form of, of Greek writing that would be part of the, the dramas and the, and the other Greek literature, the philosophers and so forth, uh, Homer and all the classical Greek, uh, Plato and Aristotle, that was all considered marvelous uh, Western civilization and classical Greek. And then the, the Koine in the New Testament and the Septuagint Old Testament, they were mocked. They were impugned. They were uh, considered to be, you know, kind of gimmicky or, or uh, really a, a poor man's Greek, if you will. And it was mocked and ridiculed until the 20th century. And then I really think that scholars came along. Uh, like Blast, Bruner and Funk, some of those guys, Moulton and Howard, some of these guys, uh, Moulton and Milligan uh, did a whole study in the papyri. And and archaeology was marvelous in the 20th century because it started searching through garbage dumps and it started finding uh, tablets and started finding scrolls and started finding things. And when they started looking through the garbage dumps and they started to read graffiti on the walls and they started to write and they started to realize that what Koine Greek was, it was the common language of the everyday man. And they started to realize that there were idioms and expressions far from being inferior and flawed and problematic, they were beautiful because they were so simple. And this is one of them. Uh, I have received everything in full. It's the, it's the language of a receipt that would be written out by a carpenter if he just received a load of lumber from somebody. And, uh, and so they would find these expressions in the papyri and in the, uh, the, uh, just the everyday language of, of the common people. And so uh, we do live, we live in an amazing time where this stuff is now available for us to, uh, to benefit from and to glean from. Anyway, so we have 
those idioms there. The idea of a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, that goes back to the Old Testament. That goes back to the nature of, of uh, priests and what we do when we offer up a, a sacrifice on an altar. Uh, of course, if you're in the Old Testament, you're killing an animal. You're butchering an animal and then that, that meat's on the grill is what, what it is, right? And it smells good. It, it's going up as a sweet-smelling savor. And uh, we love the smell of cooked meat and, and God loves the smell of cooked meat. When, uh, when it's offered in faith, because that's a believer in faith serving his Lord. All right. Then uh, the third part of the chapter is what we're starting tonight. Uh, the epistle closes with one of the shortest greetings and doxologies of any Pauline text. Really, 20 through 23. This is shorter than Ephesians and Colossians and certainly Romans. You've got a whole chapter in Romans of uh, greetings and benedictions and so forth. This is pretty short, uh, verses 20 through 23. Uh, and it starts with glory. So really I'm going to title this Glory, Greetings, and Grace. Glory, Greetings, and Grace. Because Paul knew 2,000 years ago that, uh, that Pastor Bob likes alliteration. And uh, when you have that, then you get to, uh, get to use it. So in verse 20 we've got glory. glory to uh, our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Uh, we have greetings in verses 21 and 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So we've got the greetings there. And then we have grace. And rather than the simple, easy expression of the grace of God be with you, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So what's that about? Okay. And if it's, if it's all y'all in the Philippian church, why do you only have one spirit? What's if there's multiple people, how do you have plural people in one spirit? So, um, yeah. I don't think we're going to be in Colossians this week or next week. We're going to take some time to, uh, to learn these things. Because then we have to ask ourselves, wow, if the Philippian, if, if Philippian Bible Church, if they had a spirit, does Austin Bible Church have a spirit? What's our spirit? Okay. So, preview of coming attraction. Start though in verse 20. We talk about glory. When the Father bestows his riches and glory, it diminishes neither his riches nor his glory. When the Father bestows his riches and glory, and he does it all the time, he knows what we need before we even ask. And uh, verse 19 is a promise My God will supply all your need, every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When he does this, it diminishes neither his riches nor his glory. Ultimately, if it's more blessed to give than to receive, then God the Father is the most blessed being in the universe because he's given the ultimate. He gave his son. He has given everything. And uh, so he is ultimately the most blessed, the happiest, the makarios happiest of all beings in existence with uh, neither riches nor glory diminished. So what are we dealing with when we talk about glory? What is glory anyway? When you, th- when you hear the word glory, what do you think about? Victory. The Longhorns beat the Sooners, so hey, glory. <laughs> I mean, are you, what's glory? You win a political election, there's glory. What is glory? Shining, okay, shining glowing, right? Because in the Old Testament there was a Shekinah glory. There was a a light that filled the tabernacle. And so, yeah, 
God dwells in unapproachable light and God is glorious. So that's a good expression, the idea of, of light or shining. Um, the idea of majesty, I think, is linked to this. The idea of, of, uh, of awe. If you're not in awe of God, then um, uh, you, you should be. Uh, because that's what glory is in His gloriousness. Okay. Um, ultimately speaking, though, glory is a thought process. And we want to be clear on this. Glory... Um, and, and, and partly we want to make sure that we keep it biblical because terms change over years as they're used. And so, yeah, there, there will be earthly expressions, there will be secular uses of glory. And, and, and yeah, they'll talk about victory as being glorious and the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. They'll talk about the glories of, of material success or all kinds of other glories that the, this world can talk about. Uh, but let's keep things biblical in the Hebrew and in the Greek. Glory and glorification studies involve a rich spectrum of Hebrew and Greek expressions. And we're going to touch on them starting tonight. Uh, so subpoint A, glory and glorification studies. And we're going to tackle both. And we're going to just blend them, the verb and the noun. And, um, and we're, we're going to overcome, the most difficult thing that we can overcome is the English language uh, for studies like this. Okay. Glory and glorification. Glory and glorification studies involve a rich spectrum of Hebrew and Greek expressions. So um, I think the biggest obstacle is our word glorify, right? Glorify. And anytime you have a verb that ends in phi, you've got a noun that ends in fication. Okay, so uh, we've got we've got to deal with these things, and and there's a number of different applications that we have for this. The problem, though, is that in in English, our five verbs and our fication nouns they speak of a change, right? So if I purify water, what am I doing with water purification? Okay, that means I'm taking something that's impure. And I'm making it more pure. I'm, I'm purifying it. I'm removing the impurities. I'm, I'm, I'm changing the thing. Same thing if I, uh, uh, maybe I wanted to mystify you here tonight, right? The mystification would change, you know, because previously everything made sense and now you're just confused. Uh, so I successfully mystified everybody, right? That, and that's the thing. So the problem though, of course, how do we glorify God? How do we give Him more glory than He already has? How do we change Him? How do we? Because God can't change. God is already infinitely perfect. He's the absolute I am. He is, he is pure glory in all existence, always has been, always will be. And He's never diminished in His glory. He can never be increased in His glory. And so the biggest thing I think we've got to overcome when we talk about glorifying God is this idea that we're changing him in any way, because that's not the case. Uh, we're not changing him, we're changing ourselves, and we're changing others when we glorify God. And that's, uh, that's the, the short answer to a long uh, description. We'll get to some more of these details here as well. So there's a rich spectrum of Hebrew and Greek expressions. And uh, we'll do well with this. So the dominant Hebrew term, subpoint one, the dominant Hebrew terms are kaved and kavod, K-A-B-E-D, that's your verb, 
the Strong's number is 3513. And there are 113 uses in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament's got a lot to say about glorifying, about giving God the glory. And then the noun kavod, K-A-B-O-W-D, 200 more uses there. And so, and, and some verses have both, have more than one or have a combination. Uh, but between the verb kaved and the noun kavod, uh, man, you're looking over 300 different places uh, uh, throughout the Old Testament, and that's a huge study. That's just a lot of information to take in. And you want to be exhaustive, and you want to be comprehensive, and you don't want to overlook anything. Because fundamentally what you're doing when you do a topical study like this, it becomes an inductive study. That means you're gleaning information from every, every scripture passage that bears on the subject. And, and you have to, to be complete. If you start cherry picking and picking and choosing and overlooking, and say, well, that's not really convenient, let's pretend that's not there, then you're not a faithful expositor from the Word of God. You're just doing whatever. All right. Thankfully, though, this one's pretty straightforward. In fact, the KBD root, remember every in, in, in Hebrew and other Semitic languages, Arabic and Ugaritic and other Semitic languages, basically every word comes from a three-letter root, comes from a three-letter, um, three-radical, three-letter root. And so in this case, it's KBD. And then whether, you know, depending on how you vocalize it, depending on how you fit some vowels in there, as long as you start with a K and have a B in the middle and a D at the end, you're dealing with with glory, okay? And so if it's if if your vowels are a a or if your vowels are a o, you know, you end up with kabade or kabod, and uh, that's the difference between a verb and a and a noun. But this KBD root, it's well attested in every Semitic language. It's well attested in in, Arab, in Arabic, in uh, Ugaritic, especially in in all the in Phoenician, in the uh, the Semitic language family. And every time it's used, including in the Old Testament with respect to the Bible and, and, and God's glory, the idea that the imagery behind glory is the imagery of heaviness. Okay? And so I should get an amen here any moment now. When all God's heavy children said, all right, the idea of heaviness, the idea of heaviness. In the ancient world, heaviness was attractive. Heaviness was, uh, was, was praised. It was um, considered beautiful. It was, it was a mark of, of uh, health and wealth and prosperity because the, the, you know, the poor people of the ancient world were the skinny ones, you know, the ones that struggled to find food and eat and, and things like that. Uh, but if you, uh, if you were well-fed, that indicated you were somebody important. You were somebody very important to be so well-fed. And, uh, and that carries across, that carries across all the cultures in the near, ancient Near East and, and like I say, throughout the Semitic languages. Um, anyway, it conveys weight, heaviness, importance. We have similar idioms, I think, and if, if there's an important matter, we can talk about something, you know, a heavy issue or things like that, I guess. We could have a similar impact uh, or, or visual for uh, English today, but... Uh, anyway, this is the concept here. It's the concept of heaviness. God being the ultimate. God is of the most importance. He is the most glorious. He is the most worthy uh, of, of that. Even also recognizing too, how did, they, how did they measure their currency? How did they measure their wealth? How did they measure their... With scales, right? And so the more something cost, the more silver you had to pour on the scale to weigh it out 
And uh, if, if you were buying something of great price, then it was going to be a pretty heavy load of, of silver you were going to put in that, uh, in that scale to, uh, to measure it out. If you need a, a, a mnemonic device, you know what a mnemonic is? It's spelled with an M, but you don't pronounce the M. It's a silent M. It's mnemonic. I don't know why they make that word so hard to remember. But the, easy, the Ichabod becomes our Old Testament mnemonic. And it's found in, second, in 1 Samuel 4.21. 1 Samuel 4.21. And it literally means no glory. No kabod. When uh, the high priest dies... 1 Samuel 4.21. By the way, you can also use Jochebed if you prefer. Jochebed to Ichabod. Jochebed was the mother of Moses. He was the son of Amram and Jochebed. The only problem with using Jochebed is you don't have a verse like 1 Samuel 4.21 that spells out the meaning of the name. So, um, really, it's an ugly chapter. First Samuel 4 is pretty sad. Um, with uh, the Philistines and the attack on Israel and the ark and all this. And the sons of, of Eli who were just awful. And so Eli's the high priest. His sons are Hophni and Phinehas. And, uh, and they're going to die here. And as you get to the, the sadness on this, look at down to verse 18. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. And this story, by the way, is actually playing on the word for heavy, that he was old and heavy, but it's a, it's a picture here describing glory and why the glory is departing. So his daughter-in-law, that's Phineas's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, so yeah, more sadness to this story, um, the women who stood by her and said to her, do not be afraid for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called, and don't think it's because she was preoccupied or couldn't care less or whatever. She actually is spiritually mindful. Okay? Uh, Phineas was a loser, but his wife had a doctrinal frame of reference here. And so uh, she called the boy Ichabod. And that's this kabod uh, with uh, a, a negated prefix on the front of it for there is no glory. Saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. All right, so happy ending to that chapter. But the, uh, the point being uh, the etymology of Ichabod is no glory and that's why she gives the name. You can do this with uh, Leah and the children that she bears to, to Jacob and, and she gives spiritual reasons for all those names. Uh, then you can go to Rachel who uh, gave carnal reasons for her names and, and the other wives and the reasons they gave for their names. And uh, way back when I was a beginning 
seminary student and first struggling to learn Hebrew vocabulary, I, I, I latched onto this in a, in a huge way. I thought this is the best way to learn vocabulary. Just read these Bible verses that are describing why they're given the names they get, they get and, uh, and take it from there. So uh, we will always have Ichabod for that. The dominant Greek terms, doxa and doxadzo. The dominant Greek terms include doxa and doxadzo. Uh, in many respects, this is what we're talking about in terms of, you know, if you, if you give a doxology. What is a doxology anyway? Well, it comes from this. It comes from this stem of doxa for glory. And uh, doxa, D-O-X-A, Strong's number is 1391. And you've got 166 uses there. You say, well, wait a minute. I've already looked up 300 verses in the Old Testament. You mean there's more? Yeah. Yeah, there's the New Testament with 166 uses of the noun for glory. And then the verb doxadzo, Strong's number 1392, with 61 more uses there. Doxadzo is D-O-X-A-Z-O, doxadzo. Now these verbs, they're not related to weight necessarily, although they kind of are. Um, they're actually semantically and conceptually linked to dokeo, which is a thinking verb, and eudokeo and eudokia, which is good pleasure. The glory of God cannot be separated from His good pleasure. Keep that in mind. You want to glorify God? Serve His good pleasure. Don't serve your own good pleasure. The glory of God is centered on God's good pleasure. So doxadzo and, and doxa. They are semantically and conceptually linked to thinking. I'm going to describe this here in a moment. The verb dokeo is to think. The Greeks were great. They had seven or eight different words for thinking. They were big thinkers, <laughs> you know. They had all kinds of thinking. In Philippians, we've had several verbs for thinking in Philippians. Um, but this is the idea to think, to seem, to uh, to suppose. Um, this is this is a beautiful word that we usually get mocked for by the unbeliever. But thinking. Um, and then think well thinking, you put an EU prefix on the front of dakeo, you get eudakeo and you get eudakia. The idea of well thinking or good pleasure, things that, that to you, you think that they're pretty good. You think they're good. Okay? And somebody else might not think they're good, but you think they're good. And so, does that make a difference? Well, what does God think? <laughs> does He think it's good? Okay? That's where we come down to it. Because we might think it's good and we're like Cain bringing our vegetables and we think it's good. But God was not well pleased with Cain's sacrifice. And so what's the issue? Is it our good pleasure or God's good pleasure? What is the issue with respect to glory? The glory of God is not what we think is good. It's what God thinks is good. It's what God is well pleased with. Glorifies God. Now the idea of dakeo, this thinking verb, 63 uses in the New Testament, Strong's number 1380. The idea of thinking, okay, we're not talking about a calculation or a logical process. We're not talking about, you know, upper high-end logic. <laughs> okay, you're overthinking it now. When we're talking about thinking with dakeo, we're just talking about um, how does it seem to you? How does it seem? Okay, the idea of thinking, well, I think so, Okay. And, and the idea with this kind of thinking, and that's why unbelievers will mock us 
and, and so forth. Um, because they, they, they think they're so scientific, they think they're so knowledge-based, they think that we're a bunch of faith, you know, pretenders, you know. They think that, well, we just believe with no evidence and we, we think things are so. No, we know things are so. And we trust God for what He says is so. And so all of these terms, I think, are, are well worth defining. And this idea of thinking. Um, if you think it's sin, if you think it's wrong, um, if your conscience is struggling with an issue, well then to you it is. Okay, And so how you think becomes important and we want to have our thinking shaped by the Word of God. That's the key. Alright, so thinking. Now thinking whether something is important or not. Thinking about whether something is valuable or not. Again, it becomes very subjunct- uh, subjective. Right? And we all have different standards. Men and women have different standards. Husbands and wives have different standards. Just two different people have different standards. Okay, It's not a sexist thing. Two different guys can have different standards. What they think would be fun. You know. Uh, Somebody here might think that golfing is fun. I think chasing a ball around a grassy field is kind of silly. But I'd rather play Scrabble. And and you think that's silly. Okay? So whatever. Okay? Um, What do you think? Okay? What do you think? And so the idea of what you think, do you think it's worthwhile? Do you think it's valuable? Or do you think it's a waste of time? And this comes to the issue of the glory of God. Because how you think related to God and what He's worth, that determines whether you glorify Him or you glorify yourself. Whether you glorify God or you serve your own selfish interest. Because you know, fallen humanity and carnal believers alike, we magnify ourselves. We think we're the most important beings in the universe and God, well, we don't think about Him very much if we're unsaved or if we're carnal believers. And so the idea of glorify is a communication of how we think about God. And ultimately it comes down to that. And it's, it speaks to not only do, how do we think about God, but how do we persuade other people to think about God. That's the real definition. And so um, we'll, we're going to highlight some things here on this tonight. But just understand what we're dealing with with dakeo is what, what you think or how it seems. How it seems. Okay? And just purely speaking, you could be totally wrong on how it seems. You could be totally wrong. But that's just what you thought at the time. Okay? And so, huh, okay, there you go. So... Anyway, that's why I like Wednesday nights so much. Wednesday nights are great. Wednesday nights become legendary at Austin Bible Church because uh, when I first visited it was a Wednesday night and I was in the army and I came down I was wearing sunglasses and I forgot my other glasses. I pulled into the parking lot and I took off my sunglasses and I reached into the little thing to get my regular glasses. They weren't there. They were in the hotel back at Fort Hood. Uh, uh, what am I going to do? Well, I didn't have time to drive all the way back and come back, and I did, okay, fine. So I said, I'm going to look like a, like a silly person, but I'm going to go in there wearing my sunglasses at night, and I want to meet Pastor Ralph Braun. I want to get Bible doctrine. I want to learn. Um, didn't know that the woman who would later become my wife was sitting three rows behind me. And you know what she was thinking? <laughs> yeah, who's this idiot in the sunglasses? <laughs> right? So you can think those things. Or the first Wednesday that Cliff and Terry ever visited us. 
Cliff and Terry Beveridge. He, she, they weren't even married yet. So Cliff Beveridge and Terry Finley. They visited us on a Wednesday night. And they sat there and they listened. And then I said the closing prayer. They were out the door faster than any inmate you ever seen escape out of jail. They were just gone. Out the door, gone. And so what am I thinking? Never see them again, you know. Oh well, you know. Nice to have visitors, but yeah, never going to see them again. No idea, of course. Your thinking can be wrong. Totally wrong. It could be backwards. Okay? The reason they left so fast because they were so excited about what they heard and he knew he liked it. He wasn't sure if she liked it or not. They wanted to get out away from people so they could talk. And then they did and they came back and, and there you have it. So when you're thinking something, you can be right, you can be wrong. And in large respects, you control how you think. And God holds you accountable for how you think. And if He expects you to have a high view of the Bible or a high view of, the, of, of Him or a high view of His plan, then He expects you to think accordingly. And if you choose to think otherwise, well then you're going to be accountable for that thinking. If in anything you have a different attitude, God will also reveal that to you, it says. So uh, this thinking becomes uh, so vital. So when I'm glorifying God, here's what I'm doing. Not only am I thinking that God is worthy, I am thinking that myself, but I am also living my life in such a way that I'm influencing other people. I want your thinking to to also magnify God. I want your thinking also to reflect a high esteem of God in, in your thinking as well. So really what a glorification process is, is influencing other people's thinking. Demonstrating the high regard you have and motivating them to also have a high regard for God, for His Word, for the things of the Lord. That's what it comes down to there. All right. And so once upon a time, we actually did a study on this. Subpoint three, an excellent study in glorification was taught at Austin Bible Church way back in the First Corinthians series. In fact, it was chapter six in the First Corinthians series, which a lot of folks weren't here way back in those early days. Um, but in the First Corinthians series in chapter six, we taught a doctrine called bodily glorification. And it even went beyond that to talk about glorification in general. 1 Corinthians 6, let me turn here. 1 Corinthians 6. The last verse of the chapter is verse 20. Bodily glorification. And this just boggles the mind sometimes. In, uh, in these applications... We can talk about, and it's not just about sex, we can talk about gluttony, we can talk about alcohol. You'll see in the context of this, in verse 13, we talk about food and, and the body. Really, it comes down to who's in charge. Verse 12 says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And so... If you've got a problem with food, with gluttony, then you're abusing God's provision for food and, uh, and food's controlling you. You're not controlling food. Same thing with the drunk, with the alcoholic. Uh, God has designed alcohol for enjoyment and relaxation, but it gets abused. 
And in the abuse of that, uh, it controls you. You don't control drinking. Drinking controls you. And uh, likewise with sex. God designed sex and, and humans abuse it. And then it becomes controlling. And so, again, I will not be mastered by... All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. All of these principles here. And then when he talks about our physical bodies, um, the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. It's not for immorality. That's not why He gave us these bodies. And uh, God has not only raised up the Lord, He will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And so this gets very practical and it gets very blunt. And a lot of times as it gets preached, of course, the world gets uncomfortable (laughs) and we get criticized. You know, because somehow we're the prudes or we're the, we're the you know, we're the uh, killjoys. We don't let anybody have any fun. You know, are you kidding me? God designed this for all kinds of fun. In the right place, in the right venue. That's called marriage in, uh, in this application. All right. So um, flee fornication, it says in verse 18. Every other sin that a man commits is outside his body, but the, the fornicator sins against his own body. And it says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. All right, so biblically speaking, believers that are under the Word of God, believers that want to glorify Christ, believers that have this as a priority, we're not prudes, we're not uh, judgmental, you know, we're not haters uh, for folks that have uh, viewpoints that, uh, that violate Scripture. We're actually recognizing that this is our privilege to enjoy God's blessings in a way that glorifies Him, not to abuse God's blessings in a way that just feeds our own lust, our own selfishness, our own uh, perversions. All right, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And, and of all the mysteries of the New Testament, this one is really amazing because you might remember, do you remember when you got saved? Do you remember that event? Do you remember when, when someone gave you the gospel and you believed in Jesus and you received eternal life? You passed from darkness into light. What a glorious day, okay? And the idea is that at that moment when you believed in Christ for eternal life, some, two things happened and one thing didn't happen. Your soul was saved. Your human spirit was made alive. Those are the things that happened. But then one thing that didn't happen, what didn't happen? Your body did not get glorified. Your body was not transformed. You didn't believe in Christ, get saved, and then boom, have a sinless, glorified resurrection body. See, that's, that's a marvel. That's a wonder, okay? The fact that He left us in our weakness. He left us in our flesh. All right? Now, some folks can be critical about that. Um, And honestly, who, who, I mean, we all can't wait to get rid of the sin body and put on a body of glory. That's going to be great. But in the meantime, why do we have this treasure in earthen vessels? Why do we have this weakness? Because we learn about God's grace. We learn about His faithfulness. We learn about His provision. When I am weak, then I am strong. Then we learn the surpassing value of the grace that it's of God and not of ourselves. 
we learn to walk daily in anticipation that yes, my soul is saved, my spirit is made alive, but I'm waiting for the Savior, uh, the, the salvation of my body. You know, like my dad last Thursday, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Wow. No more sin. No more uh, arthritis. No more all everything else, okay? No more sin. That's the biggest item right there. So bodily glorification. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Wait a minute, you mean a fallen body can still glorify God? Yes, that's the point. That's the point. Don't wait till you get to heaven to start glorifying God. We glorify Him now. We glorify Him now in the flesh, in our bodies. We present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice before the Lord. We present our bodies as members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness, not as instruments for the flesh. And so whether you're looking at Romans, Romans 6, you're looking at Romans 12, you're looking at whatever you're looking at here, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the fact that we are in these bodies, that we can present them as living sacrifices is, uh, is a glory. So we did this as a, as a study. And I want to review some of those principles here tonight and uh, starting tonight and then do some more on Sunday because, goodness, the time just flies. I did not make that clickable. Why did I not make that clickable? That was supposed to be clickable. No. All right. Well then, this will be a good opportunity to demonstrate the features of the church website. <laughs> so uh, when you go home or wherever you go and uh, pull up the church website, austinbiblechurch.com, and let's just say uh, you don't know that it was in the First Corinthians series and it was in chapter 6. Maybe you don't know that, okay? Google can help. If you do know that, then it's simply a matter of coming up here to audio recordings and then within audio recordings, remember everything we preach is on the website uh, before we even get to the parking lot, it's sitting there on the website already. So there was the Proverbs class this morning right there at the top. Um, but come over here to your completed studies and then here's all the completed studies and there's 1 Corinthians and there's chapter 6. I mean, you can really drill it down. And then after verses uh, 9 through 20, there is going to be the doctrine of bodily glorification. In fact, there it is right there, bodily glorification. I thought it also shows up here. It's supposed to. All right. Anyway, here's your topic here for bodily glorification. If you just click on that, here's your, uh, here's your page. Nine MP3 files, all right? And uh, we'll teach it faster this time around. We're just going to give you a, a highlight from it. But if you want the, the full nitty-gritty, then yeah, come here and get it. Uh, the, the nine MP3 files are sitting there. Uh, there's also a PDF document there. There's also a, a Word document there. There's also, this is a feature that most people don't even know about. Kevin knows about this. This subscribe to link right here subscribe to that's a marvelous link because that's an rss feed that's an and if you know what an rss feed is that's for your podcast that's for your uh you can plug that into your podcasting thing and uh you don't really want to click it on a web browser it just gives you a bunch of code but this uh this url at the top copy that put that in your in your uh podcast uh app on your phone on your tablet on your whatever okay when you put that URL into your 
podcasting app, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get everything on that page. You're going to get those nine MP3 files. They're going to be loaded to your to your podcast app. You have a chance just to listen to them one by one, and, and there you have it. So that subscribe link, that subscribe link showed up. It was just a little extra bonus. Jacob threw that in maybe two years ago um, and didn't tell anybody he put it in there. And so I found it, a couple other people found it, and go, that, that seems kind of cool. Why didn't you tell people that was in there? <laughs> that's, that's really handy. So that subscribe button there. All right. Bodily glorification. Let me, uh, something else I can do. We're almost out of time tonight, but let's, uh, let's close that down. I happen to know that if I go Bullender Corinth, I've got both my First Corinthians notebook and Second Corinthians notebook right there. And bodily glorification. So here's another option for you. If you want one of these, uh, you can get, grab a notebook out of the hall, you can grab some notes off the wall, or you can make a Logos book out of this stuff. And I'll show you how to do that too if you want. Just take a Word document, a docx file, and bring it into Logos as a personal book. And then, uh, and then your notes are there. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. All right, so uh, we'll come back Sunday morning. We'll uh, give you the highlights of bodily glorification. Uh, we won't take nine hours to do it, but we will take uh, some good amount of time Sunday morning to remind ourselves of these things. How do I glorify God in my body? And as a believer, living the Word of God, uh, how does the Word of God shape my thinking? How does it shape my actions? How, uh, how do we conduct our daily life? That's really the, the key. And, and chew on this between now and Sunday. Remember, living your life according to biblical norms and standards. Romans 12.1 calls that worship. It is your spiritual service of worship. It's not raising your hands and singing loud and feeling holy in a, in a church setting. Worship is living your life conformed to the standards of the Word of God. All right? So we'll pick up on this Sunday morning. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, I just thank you for studies, completed studies that we get to visit once again and, and uh, the edification that happens, Father, as we review, as we study to show ourselves approved. Ultimately speaking, Father, yours is the glory both now and forever. Your son receives the glory. You receive the glory. You've been dedicated since the, uh, the alpha moment of eternity past. You've been, you've been dedicated since the very beginning to glorify your son. And your son, likewise in return, Father, his, he's completely dedicated to glorifying you. And we want to learn from this. We, we walk in, in uh, Christ. We walk in the word of God. We want to glorify both the father and the son. So this is an important study for us, Father. Open our eyes, help us to see these things, help us to live this out so that everything we say, everything we do, even every thought is for the glory of our Savior. He is worthy. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.